Hello, listeners. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Joshua Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a research scientist for the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, and he currently lives with his family in Thunder Bay, Ontario. He has a multidisciplinary background in health sciences and brings research expertise in data analytics, gerontology, epidemiology, health measurement, and public health to the organization. Welcome to the show, Dr. Armstrong. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we have a brand new study from the Alzheimer's Society that was released just this past January. It is the landmark study two, and it is the many changing faces of diversity in Canada. And you were a big part of this study. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, it's, it's the many faces of dementia in Canada. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we developed this as a follow-up to the first report. If you remember the first report, um, yes. We focused on a lot of projections, looking at numbers in Canada, but we didn't really want to focus just on the statistics. We want to mm -hmm. recognize that each one of those people in that large number that we were projecting is a, has an individual story, has individual characteristics. So we really wanted to put a face to those numbers, not uh, have people get lost with, with these huge estimates. So um, the second mm -hmm. one, the many faces of dementia in Canada, really put a focus on people the people experiencing dementia in the country. And Dr. Armstrong, can you tell us what the impacts or the implications are and the importance of a study like this for Canadians who are not only growing older, but also for all of us as a society? I think with the growing number of people living with dementia, it's really important to start focusing on the diversity that exists with people living with dementia. We know in Canada, we are very a multicultural, very diverse population. Our older adults are becoming more diverse. So more people from all over the world are getting over the age of 65. And with the age comes dementia some of the time, um, not all the time. But um, so we see a growing amount of diversity within people living with dementia as well. So to try to better understand who's experiencing dementia and their needs, I think it's important to kind of break down the population, and try to understand uh, the people who are experiencing across different characteristics uh, in this report, we cover four different topics or characteristics of people experiencing dementia. First one being Indigenous peoples, second one being differences across ethnicities, the third topic being sex and gender, the differences between males, females, men and women, and finally we have a focus on young onset dementia, so people who develop dementia or the symptoms of dementia prior to the age of 65. Mm. I'm going to start there with our questions. Young onset, can you give us uh, just an overview of what the study is telling you about young onset dementia, which for our listeners is anyone who has a dementia diagnosis before the age of 65? So we structured the report very similar to the first report where we do a bit of a background on the topic and then provide some numbers for projections uh, based on the micro simulation model that we did looking at the Canadian population. So for young onset, um, we highlight many of the unique needs that people experience if they develop dementia at an earlier age, say you're in your 50s, um, you're in a different part of your life course than if you develop dementia in your 70s or 80s, you might still be working in a job, you might still have children at home. So that has an impact on the needs that someone might have in terms of their care, but also their circle of care, their caregivers might be younger as well. Um, you might be still more physically fit, but having challenges with your brain. So it can lead to all these uh, unique issues that we've tried to highlight in, in the report. 
Um, in terms of numbers, the growth isn't as as intense as you see in some of the other numbers that we report because young onset dementia isn't driven by the aging population like we see in other groups. It's uh, just kind of we understand a bit about the rates and we've applied it to the Canadian population. So we don't see mm -hmm. tremendous growth, but we do see growth because we have a, a growing population. Mm -hmm. And for people, when you mentioned the workplace too, that is something that it's just another example of how dementia is affecting everything in our society. And another thing that I was surprised at, I mean, it makes sense, but I just never even thought about the impact. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, obviously, if you're in your 50s and you're still working your job, it's and, and then you start having symptoms like, say, memory loss or challenges in trying to like complex thinking, mm -hmm. it can impact your job, especially if you're working a job where you rely on that kind of your cognitive functioning to do the work. So then how does one deal with that? How does the employer deal with that? It's, it's challenging. I don't think we have set rules in place or really understanding of how we can support individuals to continue their job uh, mm -hmm. despite some of the challenges with, with that comes with the early stages of dementia so how do we focus how do we work on workplace accommodations for these individuals or how do mm. we support them i think that's something we really need to fully develop everyone experiences dementia is different mm -hmm. everyone has their own unique needs and challenges but to better understand this across the population I think is important so we can set up those systems of support and help people if they still want to continue at their job how can we help them do that and optimize um, mm -hmm. their um, functioning. Dr. Armstrong I'm going to take you now to uh, the chapter before which is on gender differences and dementia can you tell us what the results were of that part of the study? Sure, yeah, we focus on both sex and gender, sex being more of the biological based differences between males and females and gender mm -hmm. being the differences kind of more of a social factors. So we highlight both of those and how they're important to understand both the biology, but also the social structure and how it impacts dementia risk, dementia onsets, symptoms. So we look at what the data says from around the world, it turns out that about a ratio of two to one, more women experience dementia compared to men. So for every three people that develop dementia, two of them are female or, or, or women. Um, so much higher rates that we find that same yeah. thing in Canada. Part One of the main reasons why this is, how this is explained is that women on average live longer than men. In Canada, it's about four year difference between men and women in terms of how long they live and with the age being the number one risk factor for dementia. That might explain some of why we see more women developing it because they're living longer, more of a chance to develop dementia. However, the story doesn't end there. There are studies from the UK, from the US, and you can, can control for that using statistics. So mm -hmm. take it out that factor of longevity. Are men and women at the same risk or different risk? And the answer is depends on where you look. In some places, men and women have equal amount of risk. In other places, women are still at higher risk. What this tells us is that it's complex. There's, yes, longevity has a role to play, but other factors all are also important to look at. So you can break those down by uh, sex and gender. So from the sex side, looking at the bio, looking at biology, the role hormones play, and there's a long list within the report. Uh, from the gender side of things, it, it will change with every generation. Some mm -hmm. generations, you might see less education in, in one gender. You might see lower complex occupations different roles within the household. So all these will play a role in dementia risk. But then you can also think about 
uh, trying to assess people for dementia and there's differences in um, people's functioning and how they work at home. So mm -hmm. if you're just asking questions about function at home, some say retired men might not have the same function as uh, the w woman in the house. So then that can play a role in how dementia is assessed. Uh, all these factors need to be considered as kind of, if we put that chapter in a nutshell, really need to take a focus on separating uh, men and women uh, and do things, try to better understand things separately because they are unique needs amongst the, those individuals as well, those groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you did briefly mention hormones. I know that there are still, there's still a lot of research to be done on that, but it seems to be sort of a buzz buzzword right now with, with menopause or perimenopause and, and the research that's being done around that. Can you comment at all about how hormones may impact uh, dementia later on in life? It's not really in my expertise to, to do so, but just know like hormones are, play a big role in our bodies. They, they're communicators across our whole system. And um, one thing that we need to, I think, better appreciate is the fact that it's like our brain is part of our body and um, all this is important. So the overall health of your body is important when it comes to your brain health. Hormones are a major part in your overall being. So as those fluctuate and change, it can have an impact on your overall health, but also on your brain health. So I mm -hmm. think it's important for us to get a better understanding of this. And this is where it's important, again, to take that separate kind of look at both both sexes right. because um, women have a way different hormonal setup than men do. Mm -hmm. So if we try to average that out together, it's not really that helpful. So taking separating them out and try to understand the uniqueness between each of the sexes, I think is, is really important. It is really important. And so I know that we're talking about people from different ethnic origins as well in the study. But before we go to that, I wanted to talk about, you, you were saying things about education, and this brings us to the list of modifiable risk factors within the study. And now, this is not necessarily something new, it's something we have talked about before within the Alzheimer's Society, but um, can you talk a little bit about them for our listeners who may not be familiar with these modifiable risk factors? Sure. When we look at risk factors for dementia, we break them down to these two categories, non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors. Um, so dementia is, you can reduce your risk. It's not mm -hmm. unavoidable. That's first of all. It's part of aging. It's not a normal part of aging. It's not everyone experiences dementia as they get older. But if we look at the risk, uh, it breaks down to those two categories. The non-modifiable factors are your sex. So you can't change what sex you're born. Uh, which has an influence on your hormones and your whole bi biological structure. You can't change who your parents were, so that's your genetics. There's nothing you can do much about that directly. And then uh, you can't do anything about aging, really. We don't really know how mm. to reverse chronological aging or biological aging even. But there are lots of factors that play a role in dementia risk that we can do something about. Education being one, over your heart disease and heart pro profile, exercise, nutrition, sleeping, um, smoking, drinking. So there's this list of a growing list of factors where mm -hmm. we can do something about we can if we either have the education, the, the resources to address in our own lives, we can improve our brain health and reduce our dementia risk. Mm -hmm. So I highlight a few of them. Uh, we have a, a longer list in the first report. Um, a lot of this work comes from a Lancet report out of 2020 where Jill Livingston and, and, and colleagues uh, looked at the global data and looked at identified at these 12 different modifiable risk factors. And what they found using their data was that globally, if we were to address fully address those 12 modifiable risk factors, we'd actually reduce 
dementia around the world by 40 percent whoa 40 so like yeah but that's not no easy task though a lot like diabetes we can't really just magically fix diabetes diabetes is a major risk factor for dementia but we're trying to show that these things that we can work on do something about would have a major impact on those dementia numbers what are those dementia numbers in Canada? What can we do to prevent dementia in our own population? I've seen estimates, and they're actually higher than that 40% in Canada based on our demographics, the risk factors that we currently experience. We could maybe do a bit better in terms of diabetes, heart health, mm-hmm. uh, drinking, smoking, and maybe reduce our population overall risk of developing dementia. And then also with the first study, we were talking about the impact of even just delaying dementia from from happening. So it's not just to prevent it totally, which is obviously the ideal, but delaying it actually has a, a huge impact on the numbers that we're seeing that are projected for the next 30 years. Yeah, we don't fully know the mechanism, so it's really hard to like absolutely prevent dementia from occurring. And I think if we work on our, what we do understand is these risk factors and our, if we improve our, the brain health on ourselves or across our population, that means our odds of, our likelihood of getting dementia might be pushed back for a year, five mm-hmm. years. Um, even uh, there's one study where it just compared people with similar characteristics and more education. Those people developed dementia on average five years later than those who had less education. So there wow. are different ways we can look at trying to think about how can we improve the brain health of individuals and they may extend their life where they have their, their brain is fully active and functioning and reduce the amount of dementia that we see across the population. As you mm-hmm. said, in that first study, we looked at pushing it off one year, five year, or 10 years on how that would have an impact on the numbers we'd see in Canada. Mm-hmm. And the, the reduction is, is fairly uh, drastic. And you see a big, you almost flatten the curve in terms of dementia growth if we're able to uh, push risk off uh, five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. No easy task, but something I think we can uh, work towards. Absolutely. One of the questions that we get uh, quite often is the genetics, and that comes into the risk factors that are not modifiable. Can you tell us exactly, well, not exactly, but what, <laughs> as a researcher, you you know about the impact of genetics on dementia? Sure. There, there's a few genes that if you have those mutations within your family line, you're almost guaranteed to get Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's dementia. Um, though it's very rare though, and if, if you had that, you would definitely see number of different people uh, developing dementia in your family. So rare, rare, rare when it, it's driven almost 100% that you're going to get dementia. And that dementia usually occurs when you're 50s or 40s. So you'd see mm-hmm. it in your family, you'd see it in your aunts and uncles, your parents. Rare, very rare though in Canada. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it's mm-hmm. um, those mutations are, are not common. But what we do, we do know a bit more about genetics that change your risk of developing dementia. This is where mm-hmm. you might hear the APOE4 uh, alleles. You, um, Chris Hemsworth came out when he had oh, E4, right. E4, you know, so that's... When he was uh, tested or... Yeah. You okay. each have like two alleles and if you have a certain setup, it'll raise your risk a little bit. Or if you have another different kind of uh, profile, it might raise your risk a lot. That's what Chris Hemsworth discovered that he had through his genetic testing. So that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not like a sentence. You don't for sure get the dementia. It just raises your risk of developing dementia, which I think maybe if we talk about the example of Chris Hemsworth, he reflected now he needs to think about his brain health and maybe um, stepping back and, and 
taking care of his overall condition to mm-hmm. maybe even further reduce his risk because his risk is somewhat elevated. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at the many faces report in the first chapter, we use this like simplified cup analogy to talk about risk a little bit. Um, so you have a cup, if it overflows, you do, that's when that signifies you develop dementia. Everyone's mm-hmm. cup starts out at different levels, right? So if you have uh, E4 or E4 in terms of your APOE profile, your levels are going to be higher from the get-go. And, and that's across, a protein, right? Just to be clear. No, so this um, is this is a genetic. This is related to uh, the the proteins, yes, but this is okay. just your genetic profile. I see. But okay. We all have different level of risk when we're born, so the genetics, but also your sex will change that. And then over your lifetime, you're going to develop, um, you're going to be exposed to other things, which will increase your risk or decrease your risk to you, because we can also decrease risk. That's right. Um, so my point being is everyone starts out with different genetics at baseline, but that doesn't mean you're going to get uh, dementia. It depends on how what you're exposed to across your across your lifetime. Right. And And so as far as having a great deal of family members that have experienced it, that is more impactful on the outcome you can expect for yourself. Like myself, I my grandmother had Alzheimer's disease in her late 80s. No one else in my family has had that. So I that's mean, likely not due to genetics. That's mm-hmm. more due to like a life course factor, like what happened mm-hmm. to life course. If you had that specific, there's like three specific genes that like almost determine, it's almost a known that you're going to develop dementia like i said very rare and it wouldn't just mm-hmm. be your one grandma in your 80s you'd have aunts and uncles in their 50s developing dementia um so it's much more it'd be much more prevalent across a number of people in your family right okay like i also had a grandmother in their late 70s 80s develop alzheimer's disease and that was most likely uh due not due to a genetic profile but due to the fact that across the life course um, you have all sorts of things that occur and, you, and then at some point your brain isn't able to deal with the, the damage that's going on within it. Right. Okay. Um, now, next, the next section, we're, we, like I said, we are going backwards in the study, <laughs> is, is the ethnic origin piece. Can you talk a little bit about the results of this? Sure, yeah. We don't have a lot of good data in Canada about differences across different ethnicities in terms of dementia. But if you look at the UK and the US, findings are pretty regular demonstrating that there is differences in risk across different ethnicities. Mm. Um, So some groups are at higher risk, some groups are at lower risk. So we wanted to take that kind of understanding and based on the known data, how do we, can we apply it to Canada and we can see, that's, that's part of our model. It doesn't really highly influence our results, but we wanted to make sure that that was accounted for. We wanted to talk about differences across the, uh, the different groups too and why these differences might occur. Part of that is driven by um, uh, just the makeup of the population, the ages and the size of the population. But there are also differences across different ethnic groups that we can recognize that there may be higher risk factors for dementia in certain populations, things like diabetes and heart disease. Those are known risk factors and those are known to be higher and in, in, in certain populations relative to the other. So that might drive some of the differences. But we also know about social determinants of health and how those uh, drive health outcomes, but also dementia outcomes as well. Um, so recognizing those within the report. Mm-hmm. And then, so we try to try to better understand why these differences occur. We try to outline that within the first part of the chapter. And then for the results of the modeling, 
Um, one of the largest findings we found for Canada, but also for Alberta, is that there's we expect this large growth in dementia numbers for the Asian population in Canada. So Asian, right. large grouping, right? That's East mm -hmm. Asian, South Asian, lots of countries. Mm -hmm. um, why are those numbers so drastically high? Are Asians at higher risk for dementia? Definitely not. In fact, if you look at the data, actually at lower risk than most population groups, why those numbers increased so drastically is because in the 1970s, we had a bit of a shift in, in immigration in Canada, more mm -hmm. people coming from Asian countries, less so from European countries. So that kind of changes the makeup of our population. And then now those immigrants are getting older. So we have a larger number of older mm -hmm. or people of Asian descent. Mm -hmm. um, and with age comes uh, risk of dementia. So that really drives those numbers. So it's not that there's right. difference risk. It's that we have just a growing uh, diversity in older adults and people experiencing dementia uh, comes with that. So mm -hmm. we'll, we see that, we'll see that in Alberta, we see that in BC, Ontario. Um, so a, lo a lot of uh, growth in that in those Asian numbers comes from, from those provinces. And one of our um, other podcast guests was Navjot Gill. And she is a PhD candidate at the University of Waterloo. She's also working in the, the field of, of dementia. And she was one of the contributors to this part of the study. And she is actually a, a care partner to her grandmother. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance? Because she brought this up about the, the fact that when she first realized that here there is not a lot of resources for people like her parents, like her grandmother, who are experiencing a, a dementia diagnosis or caring for someone with a di dementia diagnosis. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impacts of that, the availability and the cultural implications, the cultural differences that affect someone getting the care they need when they have a dementia diagnosis? So it's a big question. I'm not sure how well I can answer it. <laughs> that was um, a long one. Sorry. I, I think it's important to rec like recognize these differences. This is why we wanted to look at the many faces of dementia, because we know that like a one size approach doesn't work. One size fits all approach doesn't work well right. when you have a diverse group with different needs, different understandings, um, different support networks, different resources. All these things matter, and then you can even throw language in the mix. Some older uh, people, immigrants or people from other countries might not speak English very well, or as mm -hmm. they dementia develops, they might lose their second language abilities and they might revert back to more so their first language. So then they need materials that are in that, in that first language, but also there are all cultural understandings of dementia as well that need to be recognized. Other uh, stigmas that need to be addressed too. Some cultures, there's no stigma. Um, like I can speak for my family, I don't think there was any stigma around getting support and help for dementia. She mm -hmm. talked to other families, they might hide that and try to keep it within, take care of it themselves. Right. Um, so trying to recognize that these differences across people and across groups, um, to, and we need to, if we're gonna optimize our systems of support, we need to recognize that and build them to address these differences across mm -hmm. each. each I, I know what I'd say about each individual, person living with dementia is, different, they each have their own unique story. But if we're looking across the population, there are shared characteristics and shared differences that I think we need to recognize if we want to optimize our systems of support. Right, absolutely. 
Um, and then I'm going to start with uh, chapter one. We, we talked about in the study uh, how dementia is affecting our indigenous population and uh, some of the things that are, are impacting the way that they receive care, the way that they receive a diagnosis, and, um, and the fact that, you know, colonization does play a role in it. How does that impact people with dementia from our indigenous population? We often think about the indigenous populations of Canada as being young, right? And they are. They have a, gr a growing, uh, they're growing much faster to, uh, in terms of their younger population compared to other populations in Canada. But they're also aging as well. You have a larger number of older indigenous people over the age of 65. And as I mentioned, with age comes increased risk of dementia. So with that growing number of people over the age of 65, we see these numbers driven up. But it's important to look at, when we look at the health of indigenous populations in Canada, we need to ref look, look at it from uh, the perspective of the fact that colonization plays a huge role, uh, has an influence on many aspects of their health, uh, both ne mostly negative, I guess we should say, but mm -hmm. that influences health behaviors, their access to resources, systems in place of care. Um, so we use in the report a model that uses like a tree analogy showing that at the root of all health for indigenous populations is colonization mm -hmm. that will influence the services that they receive the education they receive and also their health behaviors so while that, that tree analogy is really great for the indigenous population and it shows that the impact of colonization that same idea can be applied across any group in canada really mm -hmm. our overall health is not just a reflection of our what we do on an individual basis, but we live within a context and that context matters. It shapes our health behaviors. It, it shapes the resources we have, it shapes the systems that we have access to. So I think this idea of social determinants of health and this connection amongst amongst mm. all these things that shape our health is important to recognize. Comes That, com that understanding comes from this indigenous model, looking at health using this tree analogy, but I think it can apply, be applied more widely. But uh, Back to your question about colonization, important to recognize, I think, when you're talking about any aspect of health of mm -hmm. Indigenous people in Canada, because it plays mm -hmm. such a, a big role. That's right. Um, this study, I know you worked on it and there were a couple other people involved, but it, it represents a great deal of work um, from the people that produce it. Can you tell us a little bit about what went into creating uh, the landmark study, too? Yeah, certainly not just me. It's a big team. Well, not a big team, but there's definitely a team behind it. Um, what work goes into it. We partner with CANSEA, so they're a group, Canadian Centre for Economic Analysis. They developed the micro-simulation model uh, based on inputs from the census and from the literature. So that's a lot of work in itself just to build that model. And then, sorry, for, for our listeners, what is a micro-simulation model? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so I think people may have played things like SimCity Sim or like oh. Sims. Oh, yes. Right. Yes, so Sims. you basically set things up and you can press play and things kind of play out over time. Right. Right. So for our example is we set up the Canadian population using uh, data from the census. So every single Canadian will be represented the, in, within the model. They don't have a name, but they have a sex and age and ethnicity. And we can set it up so over time it they will change like we, we expect to see in the Canadian population. Right. So each individual Canadian is, is simulated, they're called an agent, and they have those characteristics. But then they also have health characteristics. They have health conditions related to dementia and a dementia state. And so mm -hmm. we can create we can create this so it looks like we what we expected to see and then play it out 
into the future going to 2050 to see what we kind of expect. If current trends in dementia continue as we see right now and our population grows as we kind of expect based on the simulation, right. what would we see in Canada by 2050? Mm-hmm. So they develop this model and then we get the output and then to package it up, we write this report. I don't just write myself. We have an editor that I work closely with, a team of uh, knowledge translation experts. We also get to recruit subject matter experts from across the country who leaders in the field. And for this report in particular, try to find people who have expertise in each of the different subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we build up the report, we polish it, we get a designer to design it. Uh, we get it translated, so you can also find it in French. Um, and uh, then we re- release it. So it's uh, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. though. And it's been great talking about it. And I've seen people get interested in the topics and just in dementia generally too. I think it's I think it's important. So we're seeing some success there because we see people more people more people talking about dementia mm. and being interested in some of these nuances that we have highlighted. Exactly. And so the more we talk about it, we're talking about it here, the more people are gonna it'll become more common. And that's a great step in raising awareness about about the disease. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me, Dr. Armstrong, was there anything in the study results that surprised you or kind of took you off guard? I'm kind of putting but, you on the hot seat here with this question. <laughs> I've, been at it, I've been at it for a while, so it's not so, like surprising. I think one thing that surprised me when I first started working with some of the results was how, mm-hmm. like we've known the numbers for dementia were, we're going to increase for a while now. You think back to 2010, there was the Rising Tide Report. That's back when I was a PhD student. I saw that and knew that, mm. that with the aging population, we'd see the numbers. But when I looked at it and I saw the growth by 2030, so just in the next six years, what we're expecting to see, that kind of uh, surprised me how fast uh, things mm-hmm. will start to ramp up. And, and for uh, those are the best words, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so that surprised me. And then I, mm. the growth in the Asian population, that's something I didn't didn't know what's going to be happening but based on our understanding of the population what to expect to change over time that's mm-hmm. that growth uh, so by 2050 one in every four people living with dementia in canada will be of asian origin um mm-hmm. so that's huge like we need to then figure out how our care system can best support um a whole group of people that's Something right that we need to shift i think is a, it's important to recognize mm-hmm. so i think those are the big surprises yeah. I'm also really happy to see a lot of interest in the risk reduction area of things. People mm-hmm. are really focused on the fact that you can do something to address your dementia risk. That's right. Um, I think I think that comes from in the past, maybe not even a decade or two ago, people thought dementia was kind of nothing you could do about it because it's because it's driven by aging. But that's what I so thought. much has changed. And, yeah. And we have so much better understanding of it that um, hopefully we can instill more hope and more understanding of how to better improve people's uh, brain health. So as we get older, we can uh, yeah. maintain our, our cognitive functioning to the best that we can. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the recommendations. There are a great deal of, of recommendations for every chapter of this study. Are there some top ones that might apply across the board uh, that you noticed when uh, you were working with the study? So, good question. I'm not sure. So, like, what we way we arranged the recommendations were like we buy by topic, but then also by different lenses. So, we mm-hmm. wanted to uh, we start with the Alzheimer's societies. What can we do to kind of re- address some of these challenges? Mm-hmm. But then also focus on the federal government, the provincial government, researchers. 
on the first report we also talked about what individuals can do we didn't we mm -hmm. kept that out of this uh, second report because it didn't really apply very well but i think uh, yeah education uh, more resources too like we need mm -hmm. more research dollars we need more money for supports and care um, more understanding services. More research, not just in terms of dollars for research, but more research to better understand these differences. Like we highlight differences across all these different groups, but we don't fully understand them. We need to mm -hmm. have more research to identify why certain people are at high risk compared to others, or how can we best um, address some of these differences in risk across population, whether that's from an individual level or from a more of a, a policy, public policy, public health level. I think uh, we need to kind of better understand both the, and uh, mm -hmm. everything between as well. <laughs> um, before we go, Dr. Armstrong, thank you so much for, for all the information and for talking to us today. But I, I wanted to put you on one more hot seat question. Are you ready? <laughs> Maybe. Can you tell us a little bit about the topic of the third landmark study that's going to be coming out at some point in the future? Um, is Are there any details you can give give us at this point? Oh, for sure. Um, so talked about that micro simulation model, how we're looking at where you apply the dementia stats onto the population. It looked like it going forward. We, for the next one, we had a layer on top of that of okay. dollars. So these individual agents that I mentioned, they they develop dementia, but then we also can model at what kind of healthcare they use as well. Oh. So in using stats uh, and average expenses for different healthcare's. We can kind of estimate projections of the, the cost of dementia care in Canada over that wow. same time period, 2020-2050. So thinking about each individual trajectory, it's all different, but people might use home care. People will often, or most most often, have a care partner who might need to walk away from work or miss work to, to care for an individual or pull them out of the, their economic production. Um, so that, that we've tried to account for all that long-term care, uh, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, uh, so that we can look at this cost and see the billions of dollars that um, that goes into taking care of people with dementia. And again, mm -hmm. I think just to kind of highlight the importance of that uh, the idea of risk reduction, not only are we like improving the health of people's brains and reducing the number of um, people living with dementia and improving lives, but we could also uh, reduce a great amount of cost if we can uh, get these numbers lower. Um, but through different risk reduction uh, activities. Right. So an investment now will help pay huge div dividends in the future. And the third study that's coming out is going to focus on exactly what the economic impacts will be of dementia in the next 30 years. Yeah. So that's, that's really important for people to see it in that context uh, and understand it that way, because dollars do speak to the public. The first study was all about the projections and a little bit about risk reduction. So those were the numbers, but then we wanted to put a face to those numbers. So that's where we see the many faces of dementia, really put humanize it and try to understand the people that experience dementia. And then the third one mm -hmm. is the dollar signs. What will, it, will this cost us over that time period? And uh, definitely people are interested in it, especially uh, uh, people in government and how to better understand the cost. So um, I can imagine already getting requests to, to see the results. So. We're working on it. We're already started. I can't wait to see it and talk about it with you then. Dr. Joshua Armstrong, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? Thank you, Carrie, for having me. The, both of the reports you can find on the Alzheimer's Society of Canada website, and we have plenty of other information about 
uh, Alzheimer's disease and, and uh, services we offer on there. So please do uh, take a look. If you're looking for additional resources, support, or more information on dementia, head over to our website at alzheimer.ab.ca. Here you'll find a wealth of resources, support, programs, and more. We encourage you to share this podcast with anyone who may benefit from these conversations and leave us a review. Join us again next time as we continue to explore the multifaceted aspects of dementia with our insightful guests. Until then, take care, stay connected, and remember that every conversation counts in the realm of cognitive connections.